Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Uh, we are concluding today ah, uh, a series that we have been in for the last seven weeks uh, where we've been studying the book of First John and asking ourselves the all-important life question, am I going to heaven? I hope you've enjoyed this series and I hope it has helped you grow. Um, I can honestly say just studying this material for the last seven weeks, I feel like my faith has been encouraged. I feel like I've grown as a believer and I hope that you'd be able to say the same. If you've missed any of these, you can go back and check them out on our YouTube channel or on our podcast, but I think they will be helpful to you. Um, as we get into it today, that question, am I going to heaven? Uh, it comes from the key text that we've been looking at for the last seven weeks found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where the apostle John says, uh, my purpose in writing this letter to you is simply this, that you who believe in God's son will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life, the reality and not the illusion. And we've shared this every single week, but that word know in the Greek is the word edo, and it means to discover by way of examination or investigation. The heart of the apostle here is that as we read through this letter, we would treat it as a mirror. He writes many things about what the life of a believer should look like, and his goal is that as we read this letter, we would look at ourselves in light of what he's written, and we would determine if our lives are consistent with the lifestyle he says a believer should be living out. Uh, if, if so, then we have reason to be eternally confident. We will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our eternity is spoken for. But if not, if there's an uneasiness that settles in, it is an invitation for us to uh, about face, adjust course, and begin to change our ways, as the prophet Michael Jackson says. So we've done just that for the last, he's not a real prophet. I, no one laughed, so <laughs> just didn't want, to make, didn't want to make it clear that we don't believe that at this church. It's not like one of our theological statements, all right? Um, but uh, we've done that for seven weeks now. We've talked about living in the light and living in darkness and living in obedience to God's word. And we've talked about loving one another and having the right kind of love for God. We've talked about discerning truth and how God has anointed each of us to discern whether, whether or not what we hear is truly from him or if it's from the enemy. And then last week we talked about living in positional victory. The victory has already been spoken for because our souls have already been redeemed. Uh, today, and appropriately so, we're gonna be talking about the cross. As John gets into some of these concluding statements of his letter, uh, I think there's no more appropriate topic than to discuss as we enter into Passion Week, the cross of Jesus Christ and what it has afforded to each and every one of us. So why don't you, if you've got a Bible, open it up to the book of 1 John for the last time as in the series, not for the last time ever. And uh, hopefully, First uh, John chapter four, verse nine. We're going to start there. John says, God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. Such a love has no fear because perfect love casts out all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. I love that line. I think that is one of the most powerful lines in all of scripture, that the perfect love of God casts out all fear. What a powerful statement by the apostle John. And in light of that statement, I wanna title today's chat with yet another question. I know the series is a question, but we're gonna call the sermon a question today too. If in fact, perfect love casts out all fear, 
I wanna pose a question that maybe some of us are asking and maybe some of us should be asking. And that is this, if you're taking notes, you can write this title down. Why am I still afraid? If it casts out all fear, why am I still afraid? Uh, Let's pray and we'll get into it. Jesus, help today. By your spirit, I pray that you would speak to every heart in this room. Lord, help us not to put up a wall and uh, refuse to listen to what you're saying and to just go through motions. But Lord, today we wanna encounter you. We believe that one moment in the presence of the almighty God can change our lives for eternity. So we invite you right now, not just into this space, but God, to speak to every heart. Every heart be open, every mind be open to hear and receive what you have for us today so that we can be transformed before we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Um, I, I suppose that there have been volumes written and many teachings and sermons spoken about the subject of fear. I think it's one of the most predominant messages that you could hear any topic, any series at any church all across the globe. Uh, And I think it's such a popular topic because it's such an ever-present enemy that all of us face. Uh, It it wouldn't be hard for you to Google fear and how to deal with it and see dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of advice about how you can address and ultimately try to break free of fear. It's, it's, It's everywhere. Uh, the, the dictionary defines fear as an emotional response to a perceived threat. If I perceive that something bad is going to happen, then I respond emotionally. I, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I'm afraid, and I respond accordingly. Um, some preachers have kind of spiced it up a little bit and they've added this. Uh, they've said that fear is borrowing trouble from tomorrow and living in that trouble today. Uh, The Bible says that tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. So let's just focus on what's happening today. But when we begin to go places in our mind and worry about tomorrow, then we're borrowing trouble and we're bringing it into our current experience. Uh, Other pastors I've heard have said that fear is nothing more than misguided faith. It's proof that you have faith. It's just faith in the wrong thing. I believe the worst about tomorrow instead of the best about tomorrow. Um, I've said from this stage that yes, while those are accurate definitions for fear, it's also important that as Christians, we understand that fear is a very spiritual thing. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse seven, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love and a sound mind. If we don't realize that fear is spiritual, we will attempt to fight it with natural means. We will medicate it, we'll try to numb it, we'll try to distract ourselves, we'll go to counseling to get rid of it. But ultimately, when we realize that fear is very spiritual, we'll begin to deploy spiritual weapons that will ultimately deal with it at its root because it is a spirit. But regardless of how we define fear, regardless of how it's spiced up in sermons, regardless of what life circumstances ultimately lead us to experience varying levels of fear, at the end of the day, as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we all find ourselves at the exact same place to resolve the issue of fear, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, one of the greatest enemies that Jesus defeated on the cross of Calvary was fear. Knowing that it would be an ever-present enemy for the rest of our days, when he declared, it is finished, He wasn't just speaking to a moment in time. He was speaking to fears that you would face. Yes, not just for the past year, but even beyond for the rest of our lifetime. Jesus already declared victory over fear. Specifically, the kind of fear that John's talking about in this scripture. The fear of punishment or the fear of judgment, which I think is a pretty nasty fear. 
Like I know that there's a top 10 list of fears that we all deal with and, or many people deal with. You know, it's like a, a fear of heights, fear of public speaking. What I'm doing right now is terrifying to some people and it's terrifying to me sometimes, if I'm being honest, because I can see the judgment in your eyes. Some services laugh more than others at jokes. Some people just stand there with their arms folded, kind of like I feel like during this service a little bit right now. I just feel like we need to lighten up the room a little bit, you know? Some people are afraid of spiders, some are afraid of snakes. Like everybody has a lot of fears, but I think that the fear of judgment should be somewhere up there at the top of the list, the fear of punishment. Cause like many of us grew up in households where we dealt with the fear of punishment. <laughs> some of us grew up in households where this phrase, hey, just wait until your father gets home was uttered quite a bit. It, what is that? That is sitting in panic while you wait for dad to come home and punish you, right? It's the fear of judgment. Or maybe if you grew up in a household without a father, you weren't, you know, eliminated from this scenario. Maybe it was this statement. You just sit there and you think about what you've done until I figure out how I want to discipline you. Mom's just over there writing down ideas about how she's going to discipline you. And you're like, just trembling in fear about the punishment that is impending. Yeah. But John, John says that this fear of punishment, this fear of judgment, not necessarily from your parents, you probably deserve that one, but the judgment or punishment from God that kind of fear should be foreign to a Christian. It is a fear that we should be unfamiliar with. He says, God showed us his great love when he sent Jesus to become a sacrifice for us. And when we understand this kind of great love, it casts out all fear. Now that's a very important phrase. If you're taking notes, this word cast out in the Greek is the word balo. And it means a shot collar with 20 inch blades on the impala. Okay, the nine o'clock service do nothing about that. I'm like, okay, the 11 o'clock people, they're my people, all right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not the definition. The real definition, bala or balo, is to throw with no intent to recover. When I cast it, I don't expect to get it back. I'm getting rid of it once and for all. Like, like a rock into the ocean or dust into the wind or a box of your ex-boyfriend's stuff into the trash can. When I throw it away, I don't expect to get it or him back. We're done with it. That's what this phrase means. And John is telling us that once we have experienced the love of God, that we should have such an experience with fear as well that it is dealt with once and for all, that we don't have to deal with it any longer because it's been cast off, it's been sunk into the bottom of the ocean, and we should now be living fear-free. However, I think many of us as believers could say, that sounds good, but that has not been my experience. I think believers still live in many ways with these varying levels of fear of punishment or judgment. As a pastor, I, I sit down with people often, and that is generally the tone of the conversation. Somebody is wondering, how does God feel about what I'm doing? How does God feel about what I'm thinking? Is there judgment stored up for me? Is there punishment stored up for me? Or are me and God gonna be okay? Thus, this question that I've posed for the sermon today. If perfect love is supposed to cast out all fear, and we're believers in Jesus Christ, then why are some of us still so afraid? I think that John points to two reasons in this text, two reasons we're gonna discuss over the next couple of moments that serve as this provocation for fear of punishment. And maybe if you're here today and 
you're experiencing some level of fear, the wrong kind of fear of God, where you're terrified that he's gonna punish you, 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 you might find yourself somewhere in these thoughts today. So if you're taking notes, first one, I think that Christians find themselves afraid because of one, a lack of trust, a lack of trust. First John chapter four, verse 10 says this, this is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. Now, this is very interesting, but also incredibly powerful language. He says, we have put our trust in this love that was displayed when Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. That's a phrase you probably don't use very often, right? In your day-to-day conversations, you probably don't throw a propitiation in there. I I remember the first time I heard this word, I was like, I don't remember, I was maybe a teenager or something, I'm like propitiation. The first thought that came to mind was, isn't propitia like that hair growth formula that's on the, t- like on the commercial? Like the propitiation, is that what happens when you apply the hair growth formula to your life? Yes, Tim, Jesus is the hair growth formula for your sins. That's exactly what he is. Just as the hair covers the head of a bald man, so the Lord covers all of your sins today. Yeah. <laughs> Just as new life through the follicles, when you say yes to Jesus, new life comes, it's dumb stuff. Anyway, but no, obviously that's not what it means. However, because it's not a common phrase, often we can read through these words in scripture and just pass over them because we don't necessarily know what they mean. In fact, many of us read translations where they've been redacted and replaced with far less potent words, but this is a massive concept that we must be convinced of as believers today. If I could give you just a very basic definition for propitiation, it would be this. It is making things right with God after doing something wrong. That is very simple, very basic. Making things right with God after doing something wrong. We've we've done something wrong, we have sinned, and the process whereby we make things right with him is propitiation. That that is ultimately what the phrase means. So if we were to rewrite this text with that definition, it might read like this. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent Jesus to make things right between us and God because we had done something wrong. That's simple. That that is the, the essence of the scripture. In fact, that is the essence of the gospel. That there was something that needed to be made right between God and man that there was wrong that was done that needed to be restored. Ultimately, this is what John is pointing to here. Now, that's easy to read, but let me make it a little personal for us. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. Isaiah says, none is righteous, no, not one. Uh, Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. We've all blown it. We've all done something that is wrong. This is true of all humanity, and we all have need to make things right between us and God. So let's, uh, let's just try this on for size. Um, give me some of the sins that you committed this week. <laughs> Nobody? Okay. <laughs> we live in a perfect church. That's awesome. Nobody? Okay. Now, actually, I want to ask you to call out some sins now, but I know that everyone's going to be reticent to do so because you're going to think that I found out what you did this week. <laughs> don't say murder. Don't say murder. Don't say murder. Okay. Uh, call, call out some sins. Uh, let's go with, how about lust? Uh, lying, what else we got? Stealing. Someone's like, he's reading my mail. Uh, come on, what else you got? Gluttony. Gluttony. Ooh. <laughs> it's the peanut M&Ms that we ate, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Uh, how about gossip? There's a fun one, yeah. 
Okay, clearly you guys don't want to confess anything today. That's fine. I know this isn't Catholic Church. I'm not in a booth. I get it, all right? So, so here's, our, here's our sins, give or take a few million, all right? We've got, we've got some sins here. Now, the Bible says that when we sin, that we amass a debt. Uh, it is like we owe God something for the wrong that we've done. In fact, if you've been in church for a really long period of time and you memorize the Bible in old King James English, when you learned the Lord's Prayer, you might have said it like, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ultimately, when we sin, it is like creating a debt between us and God. Now, in biblical times, in ancient times, uh, when somebody was owed a debt, the creditor would take a note from the debtor, and the debtor would sign that note, agreeing to pay it over a period of time. And until such a time that that note was paid, the creditor would hold on to that note uh, until, until the debtor actually had enough money to make, uh, make things right, to cure it. Um, it would be like your mortgage company. They, they hold a note to your property until such a time that you could pay it off, and then they send that note back to you. Well, the same was true in ancient times. Once you had paid off your debt, your creditor would take that note, that debt that had been paid in full, and he would walk it over to the doorpost of your house, and he would hammer that note into your doorpost as a public display before everybody in, in the town that the full measure of this debt had been paid once and for all, and there was nothing owed to the creditor any longer. Now, if this is our debt, we have a problem on our hands because this debt cannot be paid simply with money. That's not gonna do it for God. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Romans that the payment for our sins is ultimately death. The only thing that will cure our debt with God is death. Something has to die. Now in the old covenant, it was an animal, a sheep, a goat, a bull. They would shed the blood of an animal to make the people right with God. And it worked for a little while, but ultimately it never truly made things right between God and humanity because of the problem we're talking about today, because of this fear of punishment. The writer of Hebrews says, the blood of goats and bulls could not satisfy the cleansing of the people's conscience there was still a constant reminder in their minds of this debt. And so even though it had been taken care of by an animal, they were still haunted by the fear of judgment that would come from God. So ultimately God said, we need to devise a different plan. Hence the gospel. Many of us have heard it a thousand times before. Jesus came to this planet and he became the sinless lamb of God so that he could give his life and ultimately cure our debt. But not just cure our debt, in the same way that a creditor would take the note of the debted party, God took his son and he nailed him to a cross as if to make a statement, I see what you owed, I see what you've done, but I don't want you to have to pay for that any longer. And so I'm making a way for your debt to be satisfied in full. And with every strike of the hammer, with his hand nailed to a cross and his feet nailed to a cross, it was a statement from the Father that the debt of sin that you owed was being cured once and for all. I missed the nail on that last one. <laughs> Clearly I'm not a handyman. <laughs> This is the reality of what's been purchased for us. 
It's not just some act of murder that we should pass over. In, in relation to the culture that Jesus found himself in, he was making a statement that the debt is being nailed to a piece of wood so that you don't have to circle back around and deal with the fear of that debt any longer. What John is saying is that when we place our trust in this kind of hope, when we place our trust in what Jesus had done, we shouldn't be afraid any longer. To be afraid of God's judgment is to suggest that Jesus' sacrifice was somehow insufficient for our sin. In fact, let me say it like this. To live in fear of punishment would be the same as trying to pay a bill that has already been paid. I have two amazing parents, um, and my mom and dad are some of the most generous people that I know on planet Earth. Uh, I, I attribute much of the way that I operate in generosity, and I believe we walk in that gift, my wife and I, uh, to the, the heritage that we have. Both of our parents are incredibly generous people. Um, and I won't share the details of my parents' generosity to this church or to my life personally, because I don't want to bust them out and make them embarrassed or to uh, you know, rob them of their blessing. But I will share this with you. Um, my dad is the kind of guy that refuses to let his son ever pay for his food if we go out to eat. Um, anytime we go out to eat with my family, it's inevitable. My dad is going to pay the bill. It doesn't matter, I'm a grown man. I got a job. I can pay for my own food. Uh, it's almost embarrassing, but my dad pays every single time we go out to eat. And I know the first thought, in fact, the first service, uh, it immediately provoked this idea, like, I know who I should invite out to lunch afterwards. A lot of people ask my parents to go out to lunch after church today. So thanks for using my mom and dad. Appreciate that. Um, but uh, every time, it's, it's, it, without fail, it's the same process. We'll go to a restaurant, we'll sit down, we'll order the food. And then after we order or at some point during the, the meal, my dad will sneak away from the table and say he has to use the bathroom. And, you know, he's in his mid-60s, so I just figure, yeah, this is normal, you know, overactive bladder, for sure. Yeah, that's kind of a thing, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> But, uh, but inevitably, he'll slink away and he'll find his way to the, the waiter or the waitress and he'll hand over the credit card and say, hey, make sure that you charge this. Do not come back to the table until my card has been charged and I will sign for the bill. Don't let anybody else pay. And then he'll come back to the table and he'll make some comment about, you know, the bathrooms or about the restaurant to try to throw everybody off. Like, oh yeah, it's, what a great restaurant we're at right now. So inevitably, the, the meal ends and the waiter comes over, the waitress comes over and she hands my father the bill with his already charged credit card. And we all do the obligatory, oh no, please don't pay for the meal this time. Oh, I had no idea that you were gonna do that. <laughs> In the back of your head, you're thinking, I should have ordered the filet mignon. Uh, but <laughs> but he, he signs for it and, and the debt is paid. And God forbid any of us attempt to try to pay the bill over the top of him. He threatens bodily harm in the, you know, the children of the waiter right there. He's like, don't you dare let anybody else pay. And he's incredibly, incredibly generous. But imagine if after this bill had been paid and my parents left the restaurant, if I walked over to the waiter or the waitress and I said, hey, listen, I know that my dad's already paid, but I would like to pay again for that bill. I... I I ate the food, okay, I, I did it. I should have some skin in the game here. I deserve to pay that bill. The waiter would look at me like I'm nuts. I don't even know how to charge you for that. I'm sorry, it's already been paid. Uh, imagine then if we took a restaurant out of the equation but we added an even greater debt. Imagine my dad offered to pay off my mortgage. Just a thought, pray about it. 
I'll trade in every meal from now on if you just pay off my house. All right, it's great. The debt's paid. I call up the mortgage company and say, hey, listen, you know, I know I've already paid you and it's all taken care of, but how would you feel if I continued to send payments every single month? You guys were so gracious in giving us this mortgage. And I mean, we are still living in the house. I mean, we do owe it to you to continue to pay, right? So I'm going to continue to, of course not. Nobody in their right mind would do either of those two things. Why? Because your debt has already been paid. It's already been satisfied. It would be asinine to go back and attempt to pay for something that has already been cured. And yet believers so often live with this fear of judgment or this fear of punishment when God is looking at us and saying, son, daughter, I have already paid the price for your sin. I have already cured the debt of all that you would do past, present, and future. If you are still living in fear, you need to put your trust again in the fact that this debt has already been paid. That's what John's saying here. We have put our trust in this hope that a debt has already been paid. And to suggest anything otherwise, to fear, we need to restore some of our trust in the finished work of the cross. Now, maybe that doesn't describe your scenario. Maybe you would say, okay, I, I believe that Jesus did that and I understand that. So, so maybe there's another issue at play here. One that we have to kind of dig a little bit beneath the surface to discover. But I think the second area hits many of us today. Maybe the reason some of us are still so afraid is because of number two, ignored conviction. Ignored conviction. Now this is big and fair warning as we get into this. This will be one of those uncomfortable mirror gazing moments where you might feel like that guy on the stage has put me on the spot. <laughs> but this is so important. It's so important we understand this. I've said many times, God cares far more about your holiness than he does about your happiness. He cares far more about your character than he does your comfort. And today, although this might be uncomfortable, we need to lean into this reality because many of us might be dealing with this. The Bible says that when you gave your life to Christ, when you make a decision to follow him, that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He comes and he lives on the inside of you. And part of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of sin. If you've done something wrong, to nudge you to begin to do the right thing. And that conviction comes in a number of different fa ways, myriad of fa fashions. Uh, it could be the, the pit inside your stomach when you do something wrong. It could be that little talking voice on your shoulder like you've seen in the cartoons. Not for real. <laughs> if you see those, you should see a counselor. Um, it could come in the, in the form of that uneasy feeling when you enter into the room with somebody that you've offended. Uh, it could come when you lay your head on the pillow at nighttime and you just feel agitated and unsettled because you know there's something you need to get right. Conviction comes in a myriad of different forms. But the beauty of conviction is that conviction always draws us back to God. It never pushes us away from him. It draws us back to Jesus and it offers freedom. Condemnation, on the other hand, always creates distance between us and God. It pushes you away from God. It makes you think that God is angry with you and it invites fear. But conviction offers you freedom and says, come close to Jesus once again. In fact, that's a great test. 
If today you're dealing with that at any level, ask yourself this question. Do I feel like I need to come close to God or do I feel like I'm being pushed away from God? And if I feel like I'm being pushed away from God, you're dealing with condemnation and not with conviction. Big difference between the two. One's from the devil and one's from Jesus. But what we don't realize is that when we ignore conviction for too long, we actually make way for condemnation in our lives. And as we make way for condemnation, fear begins to settle in. Maybe you've never articulated it like that, but you felt this before. Remember when you were younger and you did something you shouldn't do and you were hiding it from your parents? Maybe you stole something from them or maybe you got in trouble and you didn't tell them about it at school. And you were trying to slink around the house for a couple days or a couple weeks without telling mom and dad. You remember how you felt every single time your mom would call your name? <laughs> like, oh, this is it, she found out. You're laughing because you know. <laughs> Remember like every time you were in the room with them, it was uneasy and you felt like, okay, it's just a matter of time before I get found out. And you wanted to tell them. Maybe even at the beginning you felt compelled to, but the longer it took you to do so, the harder it became. And so you just kind of kept that thing hidden and silent. What is that? That's ignored conviction. That's doing something wrong, not making it right, and inviting fear into a relationship. Inviting fear where you're wondering, ah, is this the time where they're gonna punish me for it? And in Christianity, in your faith, you can go days, weeks, months, years without addressing that conviction. And it will turn into fear if you're not careful. In fact, there's a passage of scripture that I often consider when I think about this idea. And it's from the King, da King David, uh, as he writes in Psalms chapter 32, one of his songs. And for those that are new to the team, maybe don't know the story in the Bible, let me catch up to speed. Uh, the story goes that in the time when kings are supposed to go out to war, uh, David finds himself at his palace and he is waking up from a nap, walks out onto his balcony and he looks across his city and he sees uh, a woman naked bathing on her rooftop. Why she was bathing on a rooftop, I don't know. Uh, but her name was Bathsheba taking a bath, which I just find comical every time I read it in the Bible. I'm like, really? Bathsheba? Okay. But she's up on her rooftop and she's taking a bath and David looks at her and goes, hey, and he calls the servants over and he's like, hey, who's that? Who's that woman over there? And the servants tell him, well, David, that's Uriah, the Hittite's wife. You know, Uriah, the guy that's out on the battlefield fighting for the freedom of your kingdom right now. Yeah, she belongs to him. And David goes, yeah, I don't care. I'm gonna need to have her come to the palace. And so the servants go and they grab her from her house and they bring her to the, the palace and David rapes her. And weeks, months later, uh, David discovers that this woman he's raped is now pregnant and he hasn't an option. Do I come clean about what I've done or do I continue to sweep this under the rug and hide it? And he chooses the latter. He calls Uriah and he brings him home from the battlefield and tries to get him drunk to go home and sleep with his wife so that he can pass the pregnancy off to Uriah. But Uriah is a man of integrity and he says, I will not go home and enjoy the luxuries of this life while the rest of my brothers are out on the battlefield fighting. Sorry, King, I appreciate the option and the opportunity, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay steadfast in what I know to be right. And because Uriah refused to do what David asked him to do, David has to conspire yet another plan to have Uriah murdered on the battlefield so that he can be excused of his sin. Sure enough, Uriah is, is, is murdered and David brings Bathsheba into his palace and for a moment, it looks like he has gotten away with it. Everything seems to be okay. But what we don't see in the story in the book of Samuel 
is that conviction is eating David alive on the inside. It is messing with him. In fact, he gives voice to that in this Psalm, Psalm chapter 32, where he says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I can attest that I have. Where it feels like the hand of God is heavy on you. Where it feels like you can't even move or breathe a little bit around God because you know that you've been ignoring this conviction. Where it's eating you alive on the inside. He says, my bones were wasting away within me. The pit in my stomach would not go away. And even though I was trying to stay afloat in my faith and make it look like everything was fine, I knew that they weren't. I knew that it wasn't. And I was drowning in the floodwaters of judgment. That, that is what ignored conviction feels like. It feels like you're drowning, awaiting judgment while you're wasting away on the inside. Trying to wait for a moment to get things right with God. And listen, if you are not careful, if you do not deal with that conviction, it will lead to condemnation. And condemnation will put you at a distance from God. Nobody wants to be close to somebody that they are waiting to be judged by. And you will stay at a distance from God. Sure, you might come to church, you might read the Bible, you might pray occasionally, dip your toe into the things of God, but there will be an invisible wall of ignored conviction that you will not be able to break past until you ultimately address the issue that is haunting your heart. I don't say that to to crush you, to depress you. I say it to wake you up today. I say it because I, God, neither of us want you to remain at a distance from him because we've ignored conviction. Do you know that in one moment you can take care, resolve any distance between you and God the same way that David did right here in this scripture. All it takes is one moment where he said, then I acknowledged my sin to God. He didn't say, I cleaned myself up, I knocked it off, I figured it out. I just acknowledged it to God. God already knows. You did what? <gasps> of course he knows. But he wants you to know that he knows. He wants you to know that it's him that keeps tapping on your heart, not to push you away and to condemn you, but to draw you back to himself so that the process of healing can begin and all your guilt can be washed away. That's what David says happens. He said, then I acknowledge my sin to the Lord and all my guilt was gone. In one moment, it was like it was washed away and everything was made right between me and God. Listen, if you find yourself in that space today, ignoring conviction, the antidote is simple. Acknowledge it, tell God you know, and he will wash over you. And watch this, he will empower you to overcome what you're facing. He won't say deal with it on your own. I feel like somebody needs to hear that. This is off the notes and off the last service. Hey, you will receive the power from the Holy Spirit to walk in freedom in that area. You do not have to do this on your own, but it starts with acknowledgement. Do not ignore conviction. 
I think if we will do those two things, I think if we will remember to place our trust in the finished work of the cross and we will respond to conviction, that this fear, this fear of punishment, it'll be gone. We'll experience the reality of what John is saying here. It will be cast off, never to be dealt with again. But I know that that isn't necessarily the reality for everybody here. So here comes that really uncomfortable part of the sermon that we've had every single week for the last seven weeks where I ask you an awkward question and I force you to wrestle with the reality of what we discussed. In light of all of this, let me ask you today, why are you still afraid? Why after eight weeks of discussing the freedom that's available in Christ and the confidence we should have in eternity, why are you still afraid? Is there a, a sense of this impending judgment coming from God or is there a confidence that you're a forgiven son or daughter of the most high God and that your eternity is spoken for? Because if there's still fear, that fear is telling you something. It's telling you that perhaps one of the two things we discussed today, a trust in his finished work at the cross or ignored conviction are something you need to deal with in your life. But the good news isn't just that it's telling you something. It's also leading you somewhere. Where is that? It's actually leading you back to his love, not his judgment, but his love. Uh, let me show you one last time how John concludes this scripture as we conclude the sermon and the band comes. Here's what he says in, ch in chapter four, verse 18. He says, if we're afraid, the reason for that is it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we've not fully experienced his perfect love because perfect love ultimately casts out all fear. Notice what that scripture does not say. It does not say if we are afraid, it's because our sin is too big. It's different than all the other sins and it's the one sin God can't forgive. Notice it doesn't say that, you know, his mercy has run out on me and I've asked for forgiveness one too many times. That's why I'm afraid. It doesn't say any of that. It says if we are still afraid, it's because we have not fully experienced the fullness of his love. What does that mean? That means that our resolve today is to encounter the love of Jesus again. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I got a little stuck in preparation when I started this on Wednesday. Directly after I wrote this phrase, I, I stopped and I said, okay, God, we've identified the problem. The problem is that we've not yet experienced the fullness of your love. What's the solution to that? I'm sitting in my office, thinking, 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 because I'm a practical guy. I'm like, okay, tell them what they need to do, you know? Go, go, go deal with the love of God. Go experience it or something, you know? Like, how? <laughs> uh... And so I did the next thing, which is to pray, which is probably a good thing to do. I put my head in my hands on my desk and I'm praying. I'm like, God, I, I don't know how to end this. How do you tell somebody to experience your love? And after a few minutes of praying and feeling nothing, I leaned back in my chair, took my head out of my hands. And in one moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. It was clear as day. I could see with my eyes. I'm gonna explain what I mean when I say that. I've shared in previous weeks that my wife and I recently moved and uh, we are living in a bit of a miracle house right now. I'll tell you that story another day, uh, but God has been really good to us. And one of the cool things about this house is that my office looks up at the cross at the top of Mount Davidson. 
If you don't know where that is or you're not from here, right behind this church, the highest point in our city is Mount Davidson and the top of the highest point of our city is a cross. And I often look at that, almost every single day, I'll look up at that cross and it's a constant reminder to me that regardless of what things look like in our city, there is still a cross that sits at the top of San Francisco that is a reminder of God's mercy and his love and his forgiveness for these people. I love it. It's, it's a great space for a pastor to be hanging out. And as I, I, I frustrated, frustratedly, don't know if that's a word, leaned back and looked up. And I saw that cross. I can't explain to you what I felt because many of us have looked at that cross hundreds of times. But at one moment I felt the Holy Spirit say, that's literally all you have to do. Just look at the cross and you will see his love. I'm like, God, but that's not practical. <laughs> do you want us to all go up after church and take a hike up there and just? No, I just want you to consider again the reality of what's been done for you. Not a passing glance. Hundreds and thousands of people have walked up there and taken a picture on Instagram and walked on with their lives. But to truly look at the cross of Jesus this week, to truly embrace the reality of what's been purchased for us. The Bible says that no greater love is there than this, that one would lay down his life for a friend. If we see the cross, if we fix our gaze on the cross, we will encounter the love of Jesus afresh. And when we encounter his love, that perfect love, it will cast out all fear. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I can't fabricate a moment for you with God where you look up at a cross at the top of a hill and it breaks you. But I believe if you would be intentional about that, if you would look to the cross of Jesus this week, there will be a moment where the reality of what John's speaking of in this scripture will take place for you. All your fears will be washed away. All your fears of God's judgment will be washed away as you see his love. In fact, I wanna pray that over you as we conclude today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. I know we sing that lyric. We use that phrase time and time again and it's almost become cliche and expected in, in church, but today, as we enter into the Passion Week and we remember the events leading up to the cross, your crucifixion and your resurrection, I pray that each person who's called upon your name would have a fresh encounter with the cross of Jesus Christ this week. May we see you with new eyes. Even as I'm praying this, I forget if it's Acts 8 or somewhere around there, but there's that moment where the Apostle Paul who was then Saul, he, he goes blind for three days after encountering Jesus on a road. And once he receives prayer a few days later, it says scales fell from his eyes. I believe that there's gonna be like a falling of scales from some people's eyes this week as they look afresh at the cross. In fact, even as I'm praying this, I, I believe there's probably some people here that are having that moment right now. Maybe you were invited to church by a friend. Maybe you heard about the church and you came for the first time, but you know that you've been away from God. You haven't seen him correctly. You've seen a religion, you've seen a ritual, but
but you haven't seen a Jesus that loves you, that gave his life for you. And today he's revealing his love to you in a fresh way. And you know that you need to get things right with him before you, you leave this place today. We take the end of every service and we offer that opportunity. And I don't wanna put you on the spot, but if the Holy Spirit is nudging you, if he's speaking to you today and saying, son, daughter, today is your day, I wanna invite you into this relationship with him. I'll lead you in a very simple prayer that you can say in your heart. But before I do that today, if you're here and you're far from Jesus and you know you need to get things right with him, would you quickly slip up a hand and look at me and let me know that you need to pray this prayer with me so that I know who I'm praying with, if that's you. Thank you, got you. Anybody else in the room today? Yeah, right on, bro, got you, awesome. And listen, if you don't wanna raise your hand, that's cool, but this is a moment between you and Jesus. I'm gonna say this, you can just repeat it in your heart, right where you're sitting, and in this moment, everything changes. Jesus, today I choose to follow you. Thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for taking a cross and paying my debt. I see you for who you truly are today, and I give you my life. Help me to be your disciple and to walk in your ways from this day forward. When I feel condemned, help me to acknowledge that what I'm feeling is not from you. But when I sense your conviction, help me to respond to it, to walk in nearness with you from this moment forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, can we just give a shout of praise for all those that are making this decision today? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.